0: Anything else that could surface from that? Uh, well, it's always fun to, to be with you and to worship the Lord with you, and so thank you for having me again. By the way, I, I love the, uh, the new color system that is, is present here, and, and the new shirts. I even love the new policy that if you sit on the front row, you have to wear church-themed colors in your outfit, uh, so ev- everything is, is just looking great over here. Uh, But if you would turn open to 1 Corinthians 4 in your Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, as you turn there, a story I'm going to share with you. Jared Mellinger is the senior pastor of Covenant Fellowship Church in Pennsylvania, one of our, our partner churches, and he's written a very helpful book. It's titled, Think Again, Relief from the Burden of Introspection. And at a conference a few years ago, he told us this experience he had, and he prefaced it by saying that there are certain personal illustrations that pastors should avoid using because they might undermine their church's confidence in their discernment. And he said, this is one of those stories. Now, since he's not your pastor, I'll go ahead and share it with you. Uh, But it was of a time when he was 26, and he was a, a new intern at Covenant Fellowship, and, and his first assignment was to pick up Dave Harvey from the airport. And Dave was the, the senior pastor of the church then, and he was just getting back from a ministry uh, trip in, in Germany. And, and he was excited about this. You know, he was thinking through the time they would share in the car ride and the, the questions he would ask him. He wanted to make a good impression on his new boss. And, and, and the day before uh, he would arrive, he looked up the, the flight information and, and the departure and arrival locations weren't really familiar to him. They, they, were, they were Newark and Hamburg. And he had never heard of Newark. Uh, but, you know, having grown up in, in Pennsylvania, he knew that Hamburg was, was a town in Berks County. And so he Googled airports in Hamburg and, and all the hits that were coming up or for some airport in another country somewhere. And of course, you know, that wasn't very helpful. So he then Googled airports in Hamburg, PA. And uh, there was one that came up. It was uh, Blue Mountain Academy Airport. So he said, all right, sounds good. And the next day, he drove out about an hour and a half. He uh, arrived in town and stopped at a gas station, made made conversation with, with the attendant there and asked him if he could kind of give him directions to the airport, and the guy thought for a second, and he and he and he told him about uh, Blue Mountain Academy High School that had an airport, and so Jared drove there. And, and when he arrived, there there was a a grass airstrip with a crop duster plane <laughs> parked on the side, and he walked into the administrative offices, and he said, at, at that point, I couldn't quite bring myself to ask, "Excuse me, has Continental Flight 75 from Germany arrived?" But he said he was waiting for a friend who, who, whose plane would be uh, arriving shortly and just asking if he needed any information. And the lady thought for a second and said, I, I didn't realize they were still flying that thing. And said, but you can, you can wait outside there. And so he sat on his car and it just was a, a beautiful day. You know, the sun was golden. He just knew, he knew any minute now Dave's plane would be coming in over those mountains. And he thought, my, my goodness, i, I I really hope that the guy mowing the lawn doesn't get hit when the plane comes in. And he said, that was the thought that brought me to my senses. It was the guy with, with the sleeveless flannel riding the John Deere tractor. And then panic set in. And he called up the church, explained what had happened, and he was informed that, that his services would no longer be needed on this assignment. And uh, the drive home for him was was a long one, and it was a, a whirlwind of thoughts. You know, you idiot. How could you let this happen? Do you really think you're going to be able to pastor with this kind of incompetence? How are you going to lead God's people to have a heart for the nations when you don't know that Hamburg is a city in Germany? You know, what about Paris and Tokyo, Jared, are, are, are those cities in Pennsylvania as well? And, and, and it just was the start of a season when, when everything got scrutinized. He second guessed every decision. Everything was put under analysis, caught up in a vortex of self, trying to lead people while, while wondering how stupid they thought he was. It, it's, a, it's a funny story. But, but that kind of background noise is, is probably familiar to many of us. And we, we enter into settings, and, and maybe even this one, and playing in our minds is the sound of our deficiencies or questions about how we're perceived, what people think of us. There's this inner dialogue that we listen to. Now, not all of us struggle with this in, in, in the same way. You know, for, for some of you, if we played the soundtrack to your life, it might, it might sound like the, the opening uh, scene of Saturday Night Fever with John Travolta walking down the street to the Bee Gees. You know, you just you show up and you're confident. You just know people want to see you. They're ready to hear your stories and laugh at your jokes and interact with you. Uh, but there's still a good bit of you in the picture. But when we're pulled inward in this way, our ability to step into what God has called us to is hindered. Self-awareness is the enemy of ministry. You know, I, you, you can't drive while looking at yourself in the rearview mirror. I don't know if anybody needs to be informed about that. Um, but, but in a similar way, I, I, can't, I can't preach while staring at myself doing so. You know, my, my eyes better be on God, and, and they need to be on you. But any way that we're called to serve, you know, the band up here leading us worship just did an excellent job. Uh, they, they can't model a heart of worship if they're, if they're wondering, how do I sound? How do I look? What do people think of me? Because worship is this, it, it pulls us outward. It's this awareness of who God is and, and what he's done, his, his saving power, his kindness, on our lives. You, know, you you can't pray out loud in the prayer meeting that happens before the service or share the gospel with somebody if you're always asking, you know, am I going to sound stupid? What will people think? Self-awareness is the enemy of ministry. You can't minister and serve if you're watching yourself doing so, double-checking whether or not you're effective. Now, this isn't just a message for leaders because every believer is called to minister, which which means we need the freedom of self-forgetfulness. There's something that liberates the Apostle Paul to serve the Corinthians despite the fact that maybe two-thirds of them don't support him. But he doesn't seem to be listening to that noise. Let's read this together. We're going to Again in verse 3, but we'll back up to verse 1. Paul writes, This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, and will disclose the purposes of the heart then each one will receive his commendation from god i have applied all these things to myself and apollos for your benefit brothers that you may learn not learn by us not to go beyond what is written that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another for who sees anything different in you what do you have that you did not receive, if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Right, four thoughts from our passage this morning. There is the condemnation of human courts, the problem with being puffed up, the judgment of another jurisdiction, and the grace that gets the glory, and that's in your notes there. So first, the condemnation of human courts. Paul says, verse 3, but with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you. And why does he say that? Well, because he's being judged by them. In in the context here, there, there are these factions in the church, these different parties, and they're following their favorite players, they're aligning themselves behind their leaders that they think are particularly effective, that they appreciate their ministry style, and they're looking down on different groups that don't have the same value system. A couple years ago, uh, for the first time, I was was roped into fantasy football because at Lakeview, we we started up our, our own staff league. And it's a weird experience, you know, because I'm a Saints fan, but you, you watch the real game and then there's, there's your little fantasy version of that game. And so you want the Saints to win, but I just don't want them to score points with that particular player. I don't want him to, him to run very far in terms of, of yardage, right? So it's like I've, I've got my own re- version of reality as I'm, as I'm watching the game as well. And by the way, today I'm up against Jordan Bellamy, so please uh, send your <laughs> prayers my way. Uh, but, you know, the, the, the Corinthian church, they, they were doing this as well. They, they, they were building their apostolic fantasy team, and they were running stats on Paul's abilities, and many of them were dropping him from their roster. And, and they weren't just questioning his competence. They, they were calling into question his character, his motives, whether or not he really wanted what was best for them and and, and and they were looking down on the people who supported him. You know, you're you're a member of the Paul party. What's wrong with you? You you really want to be associated with that man? Don't you know what his weaknesses are? Haven't you ever heard him speak? Now, Paul, what do you do with that? Nothing. Nothing. For me, it is a very small thing. It's of little consequence. He he uses this diminutive term meaning the least. That is the least of my concerns. It doesn't affect me. He's not caught up in their evaluative game. Now, that might sound blunt, but he's not just being stubborn or dismissive here. He is loving this church. Paul's freed from needing the approval of the Corinthians, which enables him to serve them, and, and any kind of, of effective leadership requires this. You know, if you're in some kind of a of management position, if, if you exercise oversight at work, you, you know You can't do your job well while trying to be liked by everybody. One has to give way to the other. And and, and if you're a parent in here, you you can't can't parent faithfully while desperately trying to be your your children's best friends. If you're doing that, you're, you're just not serving them. And one of the most loving things that Paul can do for this church is to tell them that he doesn't really care what they think. But he takes us outside of the Corinthian congregation. He, he's not paralyzed by the judgment of any human court. And, and that's the issue here. The, the Corinthians were rendering judgments, he says this back in chapter 3, that were merely human. They're acting like they're just human beings and nothing more. And even more problematic, they were borrowing the values of their culture. They, they were judging according to the standards of a world that has itself been judged. The same things that were impressive to the world system around them, the, the same positions of power, they were attaching themselves to that. And, and, and Paul's saying, in Christ, this age has fallen under judgment and is passing away, and to, to assess things based on that, is is to chain yourself to an anchor that was thrown over the the cliff and into the sea. Paul's saying, I'm not bound by that. I'm not attached to that. He's speaking for himself as a leader, but he also wants them to follow him into this freedom. He's not bragging here. He is inviting them to join in. He says, I've applied these things to myself for your benefit. So David Garland writes Paul presents his indifference to being judged by them as an example for them to follow. What help this is. Indifference to being judged our abilities, our appearance, our performance, how we compare it to others, whether people are pleased with us, these things add nothing to us. And Paul does not go to the Corinthians for the verdict that he is somebody, but he takes us one step further. He doesn't even go to himself. He adds this, right? I do not even judge myself. This is remarkable. He's saying, your opinion matters little to me. And as a matter of fact. My opinion matters little to me as well. Can, can you hear the freedom here? And by the way, this, this flips our culture's typical response to this problem on its head. You know, our culture tells us that we should combat people's negative assessments of us with positive self-affirmations. You know, look at yourself in the mirror, tell yourself that you're beautiful no matter what they say. The thing is, uh, my, my generation, the the, the millennials, um, we have grown up more than any other on the message of self esteem we 've been raised on it, and yet we are one of the most anxious generations it hasn 't fixed us. The you can be anything you want motivational tagline, it has brought with it the pressures of an achievement culture. You can be anything you want, therefore you better be awesome. That's become the standard. Reality stares back at us in the mirror and the slogans don't comfort. Turning inward provides no hope. We're still looking to a human court. Today, we have many opportunities to welcome human courts, to render judgment in our lives. We we try to read the signals we receive from other people. And it it can be consuming. You replay conversations in your mind. You comb over what you said, how it was received. Base your sense of worth on, on, on how you're doing at your job. Whether or not people appreciate you, whether or not your performance is recognized, whether you feel included in the relationships, there they go off again to have lunch, and you weren't invited, and you're reading into those responses. We seek validation through social media likes, and you can do that if you're a teenager in here, you can do that if you are 55, Um, and today it might be even more likely that it's the 55-year-olds that struggle with this uh, but, you know, are, are people appreciating that thought that I posted, that political opinion, that funny video that I shared, all, all the pictures of my dinner? You know, the Google archives must just be filled with images of people's food. I don't know what the future generations are going to think about us. Um, we try to compensate for what's, what's normal, or what's boring about us. The, the mundane is not enough. And so we present some version of ourselves in our online life that's, that's more courageous, that's wittier, that's more culturally aware than we really are in real time. And, and the problem is, everybody's doing that, and, and so we compare our lives to the selective presentation that others have made. And, and, and so you see like their one snapshot of peace in the midst of a chaotic life. And you think, my family doesn't look like that. My kids don't behave like that. We don't go on those kinds of vacations. My friends would never do that with me. And, and you just scroll past any category. And we can, we can feel like we don't measure up. Whatever the standard. You know, we don't throw birthday parties like the ones on Pinterest. Uh, We're probably giving our families cancer because our cleaning supplies weren't like extracted from eucalyptus. You know, whatever. Just welcome another opportunity to feel condemned. Everything can go under review. We overanalyze our, our personality, maybe even our spiritual growth. It can feel like We're just coming short in every area of life. I'm just a a failure as a a friend, as a father, as a follower of Christ. At the close of the day, you're, you're greeted by the neglected aspects of your life. The anxiety that none of these things will change, the guilt that they haven't already been furthered. And the voice of the Spirit gets drowned out in the noise. Now, Paul is not throwing out all evaluation here. He's not deaf to critique, and he's also properly self-examining. Jerry Mellinger writes, One reason we look inward is because we know it is a necessary part of the Christian life. God calls us to examine and test ourselves, to examine our ways to keep a close watch on ourselves, to keep our hearts with all vigilance, to look carefully at how we live and not think of ourselves more highly than we ought. These commands cannot possibly be obeyed through total self-forgetfulness. We need to consider our ways and we need to invite outside perspective. You know, There's a cultural version of, of don't listen to the haters uh, that, that Christians can adopt as well. You know, if somebody questions your decisions, you respond, you know, I, I'm a daughter of the king. I don't need to listen to your negativity. You know, hashtag toxic. Uh, maybe, maybe you need a little bit of negativity in your life. Maybe you need to put some of those things back under review. But, and, and right here in 1 Corinthians 4, uh, we're called to receive leadership. That, that's the context for this. And that leadership might do what Paul's doing in this letter. That might sometimes correct us. And then then you get to chapter 5, and and Paul introduces church discipline, this this communal accountability that in some cases might result in somebody being put outside of the church. And then you just keep moving through the letter, and in chapter 6, you know, he's referencing the fact that inside Corinth, inside their church, there's one believer taking another to, to court in, in a lawsuit. And, and he's saying, isn't there any, any of you uh, among you who are wise enough to judge these things for yourselves? Can't you judge accurately? And so we, we're called to make judgments and to receive judgments from ourselves and from others. But Paul does not attach his his security, his confidence, his identity to either their assessment or his own. He does not treat these things as if they are the final evaluation. Think of this God is not helped by our appraisal of people, God, God is, <laughs> he's not looking for input. He doesn't base his report on our findings. He's not looking for our opinion. And, and the Corinthians, they might think positively of Paul or they might think negatively, but the result will matter little to him because they will add nothing to God's assessment. And so earlier in this book, he can say amazingly, 1 Corinthians 2.15 The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. The problem is, that's not the natural state that we're in. Why do we submit to judgments? We we look to them to provide us something we think that we need. And and Paul gives us insight into what that is. Look look at what he says in verse 6 that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. And and the word he uses for puffed up, it's not the typical Greek word for for pride. It it, it means to be filled up with air, to be inflated. And it's probably a play on words on, on Paul's part because one of the things that the Corinthians boasted about themselves is that they were the spiritual people. Unlike all you ordinary boring Christians, we're we're the spiritual people here. And 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 the word for spirit is, is pneuma, which is also the, the word for breath or wind or air. And, and and he might be saying that they're they're filled up with a lot more hot air than they are Holy Spirit. But but this is the human condition. Right? We we connect the air hose of our lives to the pump of people's approval, and we constantly take pressure readings. This is interesting. What, what comes to your mind when you think of a prideful person? Pride doesn't have to be loud and, and boastful. It doesn't have to be this like, larger-than-life Donald Trump-type personality. That's the caricature of it, but, but it, it could be quiet and insecure. You know, the, the self-assured mover and shaker and the risk-averse introvert both struggle with pride. You don't have to think more highly than yourself than you ought to be prideful. Maybe you just think more often of yourself than you should. I've taken my title from this excellent book by, by Timothy Keller. He, he was the one who first helped me see this in this passage, and he writes this, If we are puffed up by air and not filled up with something solid, then to be overinflated or deflated comes down to the same thing. A superiority complex and an inferiority complex are basically the same. They are both the results of being overinflated. The person with the superiority complex is overinflated and in danger of being deflated The person with an inferiority complex is deflated already. All right, so what are some signs that you might be inflated? You believe your own press. You know, at least my mom thinks I'm hot stuff, so that's enough to settle it for me. Um, you're, You're dismissive of criticism. You conclude that people just don't understand or appreciate your gifts, you know, if only they could see, if only they could realize why God put you on this planet. Um, you, you don't suffer from introspection about whether you did well, you just come away assuming you were awesome, you know, just another stat to add to your resume. Uh, you... Listen to this, you you drag people along to serve your agenda, and it's likely the case that you don't realize you're doing that because you have trouble paying attention to how they are affected. You're only noticing the next opportunity that's in front of you. You're impatient with people who think differently than you, who don't approach life with the the same way that you do, at the same pace, and you feel that they just need to get with it. Listen, husbands and wives, if if you're different from one another in this category, you could be doing that to each other, just perpetually misunderstanding, not appreciating why life feels differently for your spouse than it does for you, why you want to run forward and they want to stay behind, Why, why the pace of life isn't engaged in the same way. You're a conflict magnet, and you probably enjoy it too much. You're inflated. Right, what about the rest of the group here who's looking down right now on everybody in that category? What, what are some signs that you have a deflated sense of self? Uh, you often assume people are critical of you. You, you read into their responses, and, and you, might, you might have just caught them in a bad moment. Maybe it's a hard week for them. Maybe they were distracted, but, but you concluded that they've got something against you now. I mean, I've had people tell me this before, that they, something I said in a, in a particular moment, they, they just thought I was mad at them. They thought that I was judging them in, in some way. It's like, that was not my intention at all. I just was probably incompetent. Now in I handled that conversation. But, but you can read into people's responses. And honestly, you might be too absorbed in yourself to notice that that's somebody who's suffering. And so maybe they were a little edgy. Maybe they were a little too quick, but you're, you're too in tune with how that's impacting you. You find any expectations placed on you to be exasperating. You, you don't want to hear one more thing that you're supposed to be doing. Don't, don't tell me one more thing that I need to be faithful in, what obedience to God Requires, if, if preaching adjusts you, you come away condemned. Now, that might be our fault. I know Jeff can be very harsh. That's just his, his personality. No, not at all. Um, but it, it might be something in you. You might not be easily edified, you, you tend to be difficult to encourage. There are counter arguments. That are inside of you, that anytime God's word is preached, it has to run interference with that before it can affect you and bring you to a place of joy. Maybe you're depressed, and, and that can be for a variety of reasons. I mean, life can just be really sad right now. This might be a significant season of, of sorrow. Maybe there's something physiologically going on. But but it's also possible that, that you are trapped in a fog of mental noise. You are deflated and you're feeling drained. Confident people annoy you or they make you nervous and, and you assume that because they're confident they must be proud. And maybe that's just the work of the Spirit of God in them. Maybe God's done a significant thing to transform them, to allow them to to be used by Him in in powerful ways. But somehow you seem to always feel judged in their presence. You're not dismissive to criticism. You're hypersensitive to it. Then to be crushed by it, especially in close relationships, it, it causes you to withdraw to retreat into your emotional silo. Or maybe you're angered by it. And that's when you light up. That's the time when you get noisy. how, How could they ignore all the good things I've done? All the ways that I have served them. I've helped again and again, and this is how you treat me? you come away feeling justified. You tend towards self-pity. Nobody likes me. I just hate myself. But really, you, you don't hate yourself. If you did, you'd be glad that nobody likes you. <laughs> Take that, self. Um, you know, really, you're still preoccupied with yourself. Self-loathing is a masked form of self love. C.S. Lewis had this observation that humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. And It's funny because sometimes Christians get around teaching about humility and and they become really self-deprecating. You know, they're always talking about how just, they're just the worst at stuff. Oh, I'm just the worst at that. But, but, Maybe you're fishing for, oh, no, man, you're really great at that. It's not so bad. I think you do an excellent job. Somehow you're still the topic of conversation. But whether we're inflated or deflated, something is hollow on the inside, which means we'll never be satisfied. Seeking success in our own identity will never fulfill us. You'll be searching and searching and every piece of evidence that you file away that proves that you are somebody will be found to be insufficient. And you'll always need more. We need another report to help us. Paul says, verse four, I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. The self-report is not trustworthy, we can't even know ourselves accurately, and we tend to make excuses for what we find we need a more reliable word. Paul doesn't care what other people think of him, and amazingly, he also doesn't care what he thinks of himself, he only cares about what God thinks of him, and what God thinks of him, and and of you and me, has already been announced. God's verdict frees us from the courtroom of human opinion. We don't need to live every day on trial. And and there are these two weapons in the Pauline arsenal against this. The first is justification. The word that he uses there for acquitted, it's the same word in in his writings for justified. He says, do not pronounce judgment before the time. But you know who can do that? God can do that. God can pronounce judgment ahead of time. And he has done that right in the middle of history. We've already received our sentencing 2,000 years ago. in, In the death of Christ, the worst thing about me has already been declared. I've already been condemned. I've already been exposed. For who I am. I've already gone through a trial. I've already been on the receiving end. Of the witnesses. I've gone through the whole charade. I've already been paraded through town. When Christ was experiencing this. You and I were there. We were in him. We were seen for what we are. Like, what, what worse could you find out. About me. That my sin was so heinous, so ugly. It it, it required the, the perfect son of God to hang on the cross looking like raw meat. You see me in all of my ugliness when you approach Calvary. I've already been mocked and abused. I've already died naked and ashamed. And we have already been vindicated in Jesus. Paul Paul speaks with the freedom of a dead man risen. When when Christ stepped out of the grave on Easter morning, it was a declaration before the universe that he was exonerated and loved by God. It it was a, a reversal of the Jewish and Roman verdicts. And it was a declaration that We were exonerated in him as well. We have divine approval. The the curse of sin and death didn't make its way out of the tomb. It went under sentencing and it remains there. We are in the right. That declaration has already been issued forth ahead of time. And it is ours, received by faith alone. No more performance required. And one day, God will make his opinion of us known publicly. And that's the second thought and the, the main one here. When Paul says, any human court, literally in the text, it's any human day. It's kind of like our expression, have your day in court. And, and there will be a day that matters. There will be the day of judgment. And it's a day that's not to be feared for those of us in Christ, but, but it is a sobering day. He says that it, it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. There's an eventual performance review from the master. And on that day, Paul says, every secret will be revealed. Every self-serving motive inside of me. There will be no managing what we allow other people to see on that day. No matter how much we attempted to do so in this life. Everything comes in the open. And Paul was deeply serious about this. But he also leverages this for our encouragement. He says in verse 5, Then each one will receive his commendation from God commendation. The Corinthians were after praise, and Paul was as well, but he just was after the the glory that Jesus says in John 12 that comes from God alone. C.S. Lewis says that God is hard to satisfy, but easy to please. His, his righteous standards are perfect, and we can never satisfy Him on our own. But in Christ, we can please Him. Did you know that? There's a the classic film, Chariots of Fire, and it, it tells the true story of the um, Paris Olympics in 1924. And it contrasts these, these two runners. It's the story of Eric Little, who's a, a Christian who refuses to run on the Sabbath. But alongside of him, we, we follow with Harold Abrahams. And Abraham said um, that he has, when, when, he's, when he's up against, um, on the starting line, that every race I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. This brings the verdict as to whether I am somebody. But Eric Little said, God made me fast, and when I run I feel his pleasure. You feel his pleasure? Years ago, Wayne Gruden wrote an article that was titled Pleasing God by Our Obedience, a neglected New Testament teaching. It's neglected in the academic world and certainly neglected in the church. And, and, and this is stunning to think about. While our obedience adds nothing to our justified status before God, it does increase our experience of the relational pleasure of God. And, and, and just think about all the ways that the Bible talks about this. Right? Are you saved? Well, God's at work in you for His good pleasure. Philippians 2.13, do you have faith? That's what pleases him. Hebrews 11.6, are you serving Christ and others with your life? Well, you are acceptable to God and approved by men. Romans 14.18, did you give generously this morning? Well, your offering was acceptable and pleasing to God. Philippians 4.18, teenagers in here, are you obeying your parents? Well, that pleases the Lord. Colossians 3.20, are you single? You have the opportunity to be devoted to the things of God, quote, how to please the Lord, 1 Corinthians 7, 32. And the list goes on. Do you feel his pleasure? Let that drown out all the other noise and run as fast as you can. Mark, you can come back up, man. Here's our final thought. Verse 7, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Or why are you frustrated about what you don't have? He, he, he asks, what, what gives anyone their distinctive? And, and the implied answer is, is God does. This is, this is the work of God, the, the, the features in that person that you're jealous of. God did that. Who you are, what you feel secure or insecure about, God made you the way you are. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And, and he gets the glory. I mean, anything that's noteworthy about us, he's already claimed, he's already trademarked it. We can't boast in this, that we are a charity case, and, and, and this frees us to actually enjoy what God has provided, to, to, to go through life not feeling like we're constantly building a resume, a resume that everything is some kind of Instagrammable moment. I don't need to treat these things as, as some stepping stone to be someone. I can enjoy what God is doing in me, and I can have eyes that are open to what God is doing in me others. We can take interest in them because we're not distracted by what's in us. And, and it also releases us to appropriate gratitude in what God has done in us. You know, when, when He says, what distinguishes you, the, the implied answer is, is not that nothing distinguishes us. It's just that everything that does distinguish us is, is, is something that God has done. And one of the ways That we glorify the giver is by being able to see and appreciate the gifts. You know, parents and and grandparents in here, on, on Christmas morning, you don't want your kids to brag about their presents and compare what they have with somebody else and look down on others. You don't want them to focus on their gifts and totally forget about you. But you also don't want them to, like, stack them up in the closet and shut the door and say, you know, I don't need these. I just need you. I just want to spend time with you. That, that feels like it kind of missed the point. And God wants us to see what he's given. And the Puritans often get a bad rap as being, like, excessively introspection, introspective, like they must have prayed kneeling on rice or something um, but but they actually warn against this. The Puritan pastor, Richard Sibbs encourages us to know our own graces. He writes, A Christian should not only examine his heart for the evil that is in him, to be humbled, but also examine his heart for what good there is, that he may joy and be thankful. God is producing good. In Christ's community church, this This room is filled with it. And and, and we need to be careful not to land in in one of two different theological ditches. We, We are unworthy, but we are not worthless. We have no merit that we could earn a standing before God, but that does not mean that in Him we have no value. We have received so much from Him. And He is transforming us. He is restoring us in His image. He is beautifying what is broken in us. He is empowering us to serve Him. And to Him belongs all the glory. Let's stand together and sing that as a response back to Him.